Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. Hi, everyone. If you were listening carefully last week, you might have heard that this week's show would be about a small southern city and one man's bad behavior. But you'll actually hear about that next week. Because this week, we wanted to bring you a late-breaking story. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media, this is Infamous. I'm Natalie Robomet. I'm Vanessa Grigoriadis. And today we're going to be talking about a really fascinating story about a comedian called Hassan Minhaj. So I have seen a little bit of his stand-up, but like, tell me more about him. Okay, so he is a comedian who first came to fame being a correspondent on The Daily Show. So like Samantha Bee or one of those people before she had a show. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then he kind of had his own Netflix specials and then his own weekly news show called Patriot Act, which was also on Netflix. The most important thing to know about him is that he is in the running to replace Trevor Noah as the new host of The Daily Show. Oh, God. So Jon Stewart to Trevor Noah, Trevor Noah maybe to this guy. Yes. Big question mark on that, which is part of why this story is so interesting, because that's kind of the stakes. He might be taking over this incredibly important role in late night TV. And there are some questions about his credibility. So I think some people might remember that he spoke at the 2017 White House Correspondents' Dinner, where he called Donald Trump the liar in chief. Oh, he did. Very spicy. The grand irony of all of this is that it turns out he may have been lying about some things. Oh, yes. Okay, so I heard about this because there was a story in the New Yorker about it, right? Exactly. Big story in the New Yorker last week. And so I went and interviewed the reporter who wrote that story, Claire Malone, to kind of give us a deep dive through all the specifics. I mean, I think the thing is that most of the time, comedians either make things up or exaggerate things or bend the truth a little to sort of make a joke funnier, right? And what is so fascinating about this story is that it seems like Hassan didn't do that. He lied to place himself at the center of historic events and to garner sympathy for himself. And to me, in doing so, he's really called into question his role as a comedian slash journalist and as the potential next host of The Daily Show. Right, because when you're the host of The Daily Show, you have to be sort of a tabula rasa, right? You have to just not be somebody that people 
feel is not telling the truth, like a kind of Brian Williams or any of these newscasters who have had scandals where they've said, I was on the plane when the bombs went off. And you're like, but you were in a hotel and you were totally safe. Exactly. You need a level of credibility that maybe your average stand-up doesn't require. So Claire and I discuss all of that um, more. So here's my conversation with Claire Malone. So you wrote this story, Hassan Minhaj's Emotional Truths for The New Yorker. Can you very briefly tell us what you discovered? Through the grapevine, I caught wind that there were some questions around some of his stories. Mm -hmm. And people, I think, given the position of The Daily Show as this weird category of people get their information from there, were just sort of like, I'm not sure if some of this stuff is true. And I went down the garden path from there. And as it turns out, he's made his name in his stand-up specials, which is separate from Patriot Act, a sort of news infotainment show that he did on Netflix. His stand-up has a lot of stories in it that are very personal anecdotes that are tinged with the political. So bits that aren't really like comedic bits, but more setups to... They're storytelling. Mm-hmm. Storytelling about interactions supposedly with police or threats that he's received. And it turns out he fabricated a number of stories that it was not apparent to his audience were fabricated. Mm-hmm. So I essentially fact-checked, <laughs> pedantic as that certainly sounds, some of his stories and discovered that they were probably not true and then got him to sit down and talk about it. And he admitted where he had made up details, and though his, I should say, his reasoning is that a lot of these stories contain what he calls a, quote, emotional truth, which is basically like, this stuff happened to people, Muslims post 9-11, where they were entrapped by law enforcement. I'm sort of bringing attention to it by sort of putting myself at the center of the story. Just to go back to the very beginning, maybe you can go into details, maybe you can't, but did you get an anonymous tip? Were you just at a party and you heard, you know, I'm not sure that all this checks out. Like, how did the first kernel come to you? Yeah, I mean, I will be vague about it, but it was kind of, yeah, I think there was a sense in the comedic world in certain circles, I think, that there was something a bit off, but we always thought of it as this, like, gray area, right? Like, Mm -hmm. comedy isn't journalism, but since Jon Stewart sort of popularized The Daily Show as a way that people get a lot of information, like, what does that hosting chair mean? And, like, what is what do some of this, like, sort of questions around his truthfulness mean if you are a person up there conveying facts and information? You know, you write, like, his project blurs the lines between entertainment and opinion journalism. And I think we could talk a lot more about how it's a weird thing that we're even getting our political information or news from comedians. Like, that's a strange mm-hmm. place we found ourselves in. But anyway, yeah, that, that that's the state of affairs. So when did you first start looking into it? I would say I first was sort of talking to people in like June Mm -hmm. and then kind of took maybe six weeks to two months off. Let's say a month of of talking to people, fact-checking some of this stuff, and then reaching out to his team and saying, am I right about this? Is, you know, are Mm -hmm. there, are there things, you know, what's the story behind these choices that he's, he's made? So Let's go through one by one the, the things that you discovered. So in his second special, The King's Jester, there's this story about the FBI informant, Brother Eric, who supposedly infiltrated his family's mosque in 2002. And I'm in the back of the mosque, and in the middle of the sermon, this super ripped white guy shows up to the mosque. Just bald, all trap, no neck, barbed wire tattoo. <laughs> Dude, he looked roided out. He's just like... <sighs> 
Hi, I'm Brother Eric. I'm here to convert to Islam. And my dad's like, Hassan, you see that? It's a miracle. That's the power of Islam. I'm like, Dad, Eric is a federal agent. Twenty-four hour fitness, and it's me, brother Eric, all my friends from the mosque, right? I'm like, what's up, Eric? You got creatine, glutamine? I'll do it. He's like, shh, come here, boys, come here. Let me ask you a question. You boys ever think about jihad? I go, hey, Eric. He's like, what? I go, hey, Eric. Do you know what I want to do one of these days? He's like, what's that? I go, I want to get my pilot's license. <laughs> then I hear a police siren. Woo! I look outside. 15 police cars are in the parking lot. Imran called the cops. They bum rush the 24-hour fitness. They run past brother Eric. They grab me. They drag me outside. They slam my head against the hood of the car. Now shit is getting too real. Can you tell me how you went about reporting that that was not true and what you actually found out? In the, in the stand-up, Hassan says, this happened to me my junior year of high school in 2002. Craig didn't start working for the FBI until 2006. So there's little things like that. Craig Monte was a real FBI informant in the post-9-11 era who went into mosques, pretended to have converted to Islam, and he was surveilling Muslims in mosques in Southern California. People who were subject to that FBI surveillance mm -hmm. sued. And that case made its way to the Supreme Court. And details of Craig and Craig's life became very public because of that case. So I, I just found Craig <laughs> and talked to him. <laughs> I, I think it was pretty apparent to me that what Hassan was doing almost from a writing perspective, mm -hmm. which is he uses the setup of that story of Craig Monte and supposedly being entrapped by this guy when he's in high school as a setup to talk about the real story of right. a young Muslim man in a nearby town, very similar background to Hassan, a young man who in the post 9-11 era spent a lot of his adult life in prison for a, what his lawyers say was a coerced confession. Mm. And he is now out of prison. Through the Patriot Act, the feds were watching us. In Lodi, California, one town next to me, there was a 16-year-old kid. His name was Hamid Hayat. He gave a false confession. This kid served 20 years in prison. He just got out of prison this past June. Man, he's my age. He's 36. I think about Hamid all the time. So, so what he's trying to do is, like, get to that serious point. Mm -hmm. And it sort of seemed to me, you know, when you watch it, you can kind of see what he's doing. Yeah, you can see it from a narrative perspective because what he's doing is he's putting himself at the center of this story and being like, yeah. look, it happened to me and here's how it could have gone badly, but it didn't. I'm like, what if I complied that night like Hamid? Dude, being a smartass saved my life. That's why, when I finally got my own shot, 
to do my own show on Netflix. I named that shit Patriot Act. It was my middle finger to brother Eric. So he's trying to drive home a real point, but right. by using a not real setup that puts him at the center of this controversy. Throughout the reporting process and just thinking about this a lot, I came to see the fabrications as part of a, almost like a, a like a writing tick mm-hmm. that he has. And I started to think about it as like, he's he has like a Forrest Gump problem where like the way he tells stories, he always puts himself in the story. Yes. Yeah, rather than like kind of writing around it in an observational way. It's a writing thing, actually, when you come down to it. Because obviously, like, comedy specials are like, this is written, right? right this is course, like, yes, we're getting, we're being told the story, but the structure of specials is actually quite interesting, especially if, like, you do narrative journalism, yes. right? You think about that stuff a lot. So that's how I was thinking about it. He had a sort of a narrative mm-hmm. centering, which a number of people I talked to in the comedy world also sort of took him to task for, for kind of always putting himself in the center of the narrative. But just on a pure structural level, I think that's what he was trying to do. And that is Hassan's explanation for a certain portion of the fabrications and making up characters. Is It's to get to the point faster. It's to kind of get mm-hmm. to what he, again, the emotional truth. I'm using these fictional devices. That is such an interesting point, kind of the Forrest Gumpification of his choice of storytelling and the way that he's choosing to structure these jokes. Because, yeah, as you just said, I think a lot of people may not realize, but when somebody's filming an hour comedy special, that's not the first time they've done it. They've been working that hour out for months, if not a year. and Or years, yeah. Totally. Or years. And then, you know, when they finally tape it, they tape several and they pick the best one. <laughs> yeah. And it's all very planned and structured. And I, I was trying to think through why one would do this. And, and to me, it seems like so, I can't separate it from autofiction. There's been this rise toward first person narratives and I don't know where that comes from like the cynical maybe like boomer perspective would be that it's just millennials are so self-obsessed and that's the only thing they can think to write but I also think another perspective is it comes out of perhaps a an unwillingness or a sensitivity to not want to write somebody's perspective incorrectly or it's I mean I think it's also just storytelling or like a want more one-man show aesthetic does yes. seem to be a prevailing, I don't want to call it a trend in in comedy because it's like something that's existed, but... I think it is a trend. I think it absolutely is a trend. Hannah Gadsby. Yeah, or, Hannah Gadsby, John Mulaney's latest mm-hmm. special. There's a much more of like a, hey, here's my, here's my drug intervention and here's how I was like a terrible person at rehab. You know what I mean? We all quarantined. We all went to rehab and we all got divorced and now our reputation is different. It's confessional. You know, like that kind of thing. Confessional. And I also think the whole storytelling, one-man show aspect in comedy of late, I do think is kind of tied to like, every comedian has a podcast where they get on and they talk about how fucked up they are. (laughs) And they talk about, like, what they believe. And I think I have this in the piece a little bit, which is, like, comedians have become, you know, a certain set of them are the weird public intellectuals. yes. You know, the weird opinion journalists. And then, I think, on the other side of that, there are also people who are like, yeah, well, now I'm going to devote myself to skewing liberal pieties because half of the people who are in my profession are trying to talk about morality through their specials or trying to talk about like deep-seated trauma. So I think what's being produced is very personal. It does talk about like darkness in society in different 
ways. Mm-hmm. And there, there's lots of comedy scandals in the last few Absolutely. years of comedians who have had falls. Absolutely. And to me, it's in, inextricable from the politics and wider social trends of our time. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So you'd, you know, you kind of got a tip, you started looking into it. Did you then sit down and watch the specials and pull out specific claims? Like, what was your step there? I did watch the specials, and I was talking to people, and particularly the anthrax story. Yes, let's talk about that. Will you tell me what that story was? Because of his personal identity as a Muslim Indian American, he was getting a lot of actual threats online, Mm -hmm. Netflix had received a physical letter threatening him. He has this story where he says he's, you know, this is after he's done some of these controversial episodes about Saudi Arabia and India, mm-hmm. and he comes to his apartment, he gets his mail. To me. I rip it open, I flip it over, and all this white powder falls into the stroller. And it falls on my daughter's shoulder. Her neck, her cheeks. And she's staring at me. And I run upstairs and I tell Bina. And this time I can't lie. We rush down to NYU. But this time we go through the emergency room. And the moment they see the baby, they just rip the clothes off her and they take her away. And me and Bina, we're sitting in the waiting room for hours and we're not talking. 
Finally, around midnight, nurse comes in and she's holding my daughter. But she's with an investigator. And the investigator reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a plastic baggie filled with white powder. He goes, Mr. Minhaj, you're very lucky. This isn't real anthrax. But I've been in this department long enough to know this shit just doesn't come out of nowhere. So I have to ask you something, young man. Who on earth have you been antagonizing? It's meant to drive home the idea that he has been endangered while doing this comedy show. Mm -hmm. So what Hassan says happened is that there was a letter delivered to his apartment that had white powder in it. Okay. That he joked to his wife, well, what if there was anthrax in it? And that's the seed of the story. I should note here, he says he never reported the letter to Netflix. Okay. Even though Netflix was worried about his security at that time, and there was a security guard who had been hired to kind of look out for him. So the part about going to the hospital and all of that stuff, he admitted that that never happened. He says the seed of the truth is like, yes, I did get a letter, and... Yes, we did feel endangered. So then how did you go about finding out that the anthrax thing never happened? Well, it had raised eyebrows among people on the show because there was awareness that people were threatening him online. Mm -hmm. There was a security guard who had been hired. Security was a concern. So when people heard about that, I think it did raise some like, huh, you know, huh. Mm -hmm. Why didn't I hear about that? Including people who were really involved in the security. So I went to his old building. I talked to the people who worked at the front desk. When incidents of suspected anthrax happen in New York City, I don't think it'll surprise anyone based on the events of the post-September 11th world, where actually there was a threatened anthrax attack at The Daily Show, which is sort of interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it is in the comedy news show history. Anyway, when there is even a suspected anthrax exposure, there's a system. So right. Hospitals, NYPD, Department of Health. Like, there are people who are made aware of that because it's a serious issue anywhere, but particularly in New York. So there were ways to reach out and say, like, hey, (laughs) you know, during this time period, was there any suspected anthrax incident? And none that I could find, nor had anyone at his building known about an incident like this, nor did anyone involved with the show and his security know about it. Just got to say, I love this shoe leather reporting. Real real boots on the <laughs> ground. You're going, you're talking to the doorman. This is great. <laughs> this is great. So one of the other key points that he sets up in the King's Jester special is that he goes and he has this meeting at the Saudi embassy. Good luck with your show, Mr. Minaj. <laughs> we'll be watching. <laughs> they escort me and Jim out of the embassy. Now we're sitting on the train. We're not talking. (laughs) We get back to New York City. I open up my phone. Everybody at the office is texting me. Are you okay? Are you all right? Are you watching the news? I'm like, what the fuck is on the news? But I'm not done on CNN breaking news. Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi murdered inside of a Saudi consulate. I go, oh shit. I was just in one of those. Can you tell me what you discovered there? Yeah, so uh, if people remember MBS... There was a point in time before Khashoggi's murder where the crown prince was on this basically like U.S. tour. And so during that time, 
Patriot Act, Hassan, I don't think that the show had gone on the air mm-hmm. yet, but they were sort of exploring the possibility of doing a sit-down interview with MBS. Okay. And so they went to D.C. to go to the Saudi embassy. It happened, you know, Hassan went with, with someone and, you know, like the, the Patriot Act sort of made a pitch to the Saudis. Mm-hmm. And what actually happened is they made that pitch in like sometime, I think, in September. Mm-hmm. Khashoggi, I believe, was murdered in October. The way he tells it, again, to go back to the Forrest Gump writing problem, where I think a lot of the fabrications come from, is he essentially compressed the timeline. And we, the audience, are meant to believe that the news of Khashoggi's murder has just broken and people are genuinely worried for Hassan's safety. Mm-hmm. Again, I think it's just, it's like this this idea of sort of like putting himself at the, the center of the story a little bit. But I was able to you know find out that the meeting happened around a month earlier, prior to Khashoggi's murder. So thanks to his acclaim and rising fame, he was put on the Time 100 list and he went to the Gallic and then he tells this story about a chair being kept empty for a Saudi activist. Why is this chair empty? She goes, sweetie, that chair is for Lou Shane. I'm like, who? <laughs> Lou Shane. She's the Saudi female activist that's being tortured right now for driving in Saudi Arabia. And in the special, he says that there has been a ceremonial chair left open, and it's for this woman who can't be at the gala because she's imprisoned in Saudi. And from the shadows emerges an individual. And into the room steps, Jared Kushner. (laughs) Who, by the way, is WhatsApp friends with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And he sees the empty chair. Lujain's symbolic chair. And he walks over and he sits down in her chair. There was no chair set aside at at the gala, nor did Jared Kushner sit in it. This is the weirdest one to me because you don't even need to do that from a storytelling perspective. You don't need to have an empty chair. It's like, gilding the lily. It is gilding the lily. It's a hat on a hat. Yeah, I mean, I, I asked him about that. I asked, couldn't you make the point about this just based on Kushner's very public record alone? Like, right. why did you do this? And he just, he kept on coming back to, I wanted to make that particular point about women activists in Saudi. And that's the way I got to that angle on the story. He basically defends the the fictions in that story as, like, again, this is my right as artist. To create a symbolic empty chair. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I mean, it doesn't seem very funny to me, but look, who, who, am, who am I to judge? I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash infamous. That's rocketmoney.com slash infamous. rocketmoney.com slash infamous. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So you've done all this reporting, and now you need to go and get comment from him. How Mm -hmm. did that work? Did you reach out to his publicist, go back and forth? Did they not want to give comment at first? Were they willing to sit down straight away? They did not want to give comment at first, and I think the dynamic of the strikes was used a little bit at first as like, oh, you seem to be asking about things that have to do with the Netflix special. We're not sure we can talk about. As though it would be promoting... So they were worried that Mm -hmm. talking would be breaking the promotion rule because SAG and WGA people aren't supposed to promote projects that are under the strike. Yeah, correct. Around Labor Day, I reached out again and said, listen, you know, this story is happening. I'd like to talk. And I heard back from a different publicist and had a little conversation and sort of said at the end, you know, I think you should talk to me. And he did end up talking to me is essentially it. We always thought of it as an interesting question about like, What is journalism? What is a journalist now is, I think, more fluid than I think journalists would like it to be. Who Americans trust, where Mm -hmm. they get trustworthy information is actually like a really big question. And so I was, you know, genuinely curious. I wanted to know if I was wrong. Right. But I also wanted to know if I was right, why the choices had been made. So we ended up having a sit down. And what was that meeting like? He suggested that we meet, I think we were originally supposed to be at the Olive Tree Cafe, which is above the Comedy Cellar. Mm-hmm. And then there was work going on. So we ended up doing the the interview itself in the the showroom that's like the basement of the Fat Black Pussycat. It's bigger than the Comedy Cellar mm-hmm. itself. But like, yes, it's a, it's a small venue. So anyway, it was the afternoon. It was not like nighttime. It was like an empty thing. And obviously the point, the, <laughs> the venue was very pointed. Mm-hmm. Is this like his home turf club? Like pointed in what way? Well... You know, I asked him, I was like, it seems like a pointed location to have me here. And I let him start off the conversation. And I think he was basically like, yeah, I wanted to do it here because this is like the center of American standup. And he then kind of gave his, I would say, like kind of kickoff preamble of like, listen, this is how I think about my comedy. And Uh that's, you know, he continued throughout the conversation to draw this distinction between his his standup work Mm -hmm. and his work on Patriot Act as two separate ways of approaching comedy. So in Patriot Act, he said, information always, is always first, he comes second. And in his stand-up, he has more latitude to kind of, again, play with characters, fiction, hyperbole. And so he kind of like gave his very, essentially his, his theory of comedy and the, and the hard line, I guess, he draws between those two Hassan Minaj personas. So he kind of kicks off with this with this preamble. Then what happens? Yeah, I would say I essentially like asked him to go through the incidents and 
His response was largely the same to each one. I would ask him, is that how it happened, as you told it? And in most cases, it hadn't. And he he does come back to his comedy is drawing attention to things that a lot of Americans don't pay attention to, mm-hmm. right? You know, the idea that he is bringing the perspective of a practicing Muslim who came of age in post-9-11 America, and that's not a perspective that's out there in the mainstream. And then there was an interesting critical reversal of like, yeah, but what does that say about the audience that they needed that from him? I think that's a really, really great point. And before we talked, I did a lot of reading on this concept of clapter comedy, where, where you deliver a line to garner applause rather than an actual laugh. Tina Fey talked about it being coined in 2008 by Seth Meyers. Just this idea that people would be like, Oh, some, you know, something really bad happened to me, but I fought on, you know, and yeah. that's, that's, that's not a joke, but in this era of post Obama and onwards, it is very self-congratulatory. Yeah. It's, and certainly during the Trump era, I mean, Colbert's show became very overtly resistancy. I think the fact that Trump was so, I mean, we got to give it to him. Funny. Funny both on purpose and often not on purpose. Comedy became a default way to discuss politics because our politics became so comical that it did then take on, oh, are the comedians just like making fun of the president? Or now it does feel like it carries a different weight because there was a Muslim ban, right? And then it carries a lot of dark weight to it. And so I think comedy was co-opted in lots of ways by the Trump era. People have said this a million times over. Veep got less funny because it became real. Reality became Veep. Like, right? But also because it's like, well, shit, like, is this where we talk about real life now? And that felt very different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there was this moment within the Trump era of art as protest and that art art Mm -hmm. becomes protest. And I don't know. I, I, whether that's good or bad but looking back and this ties back to what you said with some of the reception to the piece is that there does seem something so self-congratulatory to me about being a white audience hearing these oppression stories and being able to pat yourself on the back for being like I never did any of those extreme things and you know what here I am clapping for a brown man who survived that and then you get to turn off Netflix without actually doing anything to alleviate any oppression or exploitation experienced by anybody. And I guess I should say, what well, to be a pedantic fact Please. checker, I don't know, listen, as we all know, Netflix doesn't share their audience numbers. So like, I don't know what percentage of the audience was white, what percentage was brown or black or whatever. But like, I think there's been a lot of talk about lived experience and sure. the way that that plays into our understanding of the world and understanding of politics. And I think people on the left wing, liberal, mainstream, whatever you want to say, bring up the idea of like, we need a broader spectrum of lived experiences brought in. And I think people on the right, because people on the right have picked up the story too and said, you know, look, it's it's a lie, right? Like you can just make up this, you know, a victimhood culture. So obviously like everything, this has just become refracted through partisan lens, which I think says a lot about just, yeah, identity identity politics in general in America. So do you think this means he can't get the Daily Show job now? And what does this mean for comedy in general? It's a great question. I think there's a couple things, some of which are structural, which are interesting. I think Trevor Noah left that show, presumably because he could make more money touring than he could 
being the host of mm. what was once like this marquee show. Cable is a dying industry. It's slowly dying. It still makes money, but it's slowly dying. I think cable shows have less prestige than cable shows did during, like, let's say, the era when Jon Stewart was really appointment viewing for a lot of people. It's not appointment viewing now. It's like all these comedy shows. I think we often watch them clipped on YouTube, right? I think there's a number of prominent names that have been floated. Hassan is certainly one of them. I have a sense that he was up there. Mm-hmm. I will confess to being sort of surprised by the the attention. It seems to have gotten a lot of attention yes. in a way that I was surprised by. I think it, he could very well still get The Daily Show. I think there are lots of things that executives weigh mm-hmm. when they're deciding who's going to be the host of their show. And listen, I don't think you even have to be a crisis PR specialist to know that news cycles ebb and flow. Absolutely. He has the experience. He is a very handsome, talented performer. He has a charming stage presence, for sure. And I think it's inarguable that he's a, he is a telegenic person. You know, he was in, like, debate in high school. He's a person who has a way with words, is not new to hosting at all. I am in no way thinking that he's not going to get it because of this. I'm sure there's lots of people who are existing in the world who have no idea this controversy happened or who aren't taking part in a conversation about whether we should be done with this genre of comedy. And I think a lot of people like eating their sad lunch salad at work and watching (laughs) 20 minutes of The Daily Show. You didn't need to call me out like that. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And I think, honestly, a a lot of content now is produced to be background noise to people's lives. Like, Television shows are greenlit on the basis of, I know you cook dinner and watch fill-in-the-blank show about dating, you know? Mm-hmm. like that's And so I think, like, there's comfort. There's This genre is comfort. And, yeah, I kind of come back to, like, does it make money? Is it good for business? It's probably staying. That is absolutely perfect. Thank you so much, Claire. Hey, everyone. It's Vanessa. I'm just coming in to tell you a bit of a coda. So three weeks after we published this episode, Hassan Minaj was out of the running for the Daily Show host position. So that dream was over for him. And then, maybe because he felt he didn't have a lot to lose, six days later, he released a video defending himself against Claire's article. In this video, he made some decent points. But honestly, not enough by the standards of journalism to say that Claire had messed up. For example, he acknowledged that the brother Eric's story did not happen the way he told it, even though he reiterated that he had been targeted by law enforcement. Take a listen. The truth is, I did have altercations with undercover law enforcement growing up, and that experience formed the basis of this story. But it didn't go down exactly like this. So I understand why people are upset. People face real danger at the hands of the police, and false stories can undermine real stories. And I am sorry I added to that problem. I also had run-ins with undercover agents. I was even physically harassed by them while playing basketball. It was happening all over the country, even in my mosque, in my hometown. It was infiltrated. Okay, so there was that. As far as the anthrax episode is concerned, Hassan also said that he did receive a letter with white powder, and he apologized for embellishing the story. 
My last special, I talk about how I received a letter in the mail, and when I opened the letter, white powder fell on my daughter, and we had to take her to the hospital only to find out it was not real anthrax. This, as you know, is not how it went down. And let me just say, I am sorry for embellishing the story or if anyone was worrying about me and my family. I apologize. But let me make something clear. A letter with white powder was sent to my apartment in February of 2019. I opened it in the kitchen. Powder fell on the table and my daughter was just a few feet away. After 10 seconds of freaking out, I realized it was not anthrax. The danger at that time was palpable, but Bina and I decided to keep the anthrax scare private because we were worried that Netflix might shut down my show. I thought I had two different expectations built into my work. My work as a storytelling comedian and my work as a political comedian. But in my work as a storytelling comedian, I assumed that the lines between truth and fiction were allowed to be a bit more blurry. Hassan's main point with this video seems to me to be accusing The New Yorker of insufficiently fact-checking their story, of taking quotes out of context and cherry-picking anecdotes. This was all a big thing online for a few days. But ultimately, The New Yorker released a statement on behalf of Claire, and they said they stand by her story. Okay, that's all for our Hassan Minaj episode. Might have been more than you ever wanted to know, but we'll see you next week. And we'll be talking about something quite different. You own a business in this town, and it would be very unwise for you to do anything bad. Yeah, he should have listened to me. The list is called A Breakdown of All My Lays. Do you still want to get married when you're 38 to a 25-year-old? Yeah. Really? To a 25-year-old? Yeah. Derek Jeter's doing it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.